Hey, welcome to Curly Questions. This is a space where we shake things up to explore the perceptions, mindsets and biases that we breathe every day and hardly even think about. Questions that stop us in our tracks and urge us to probe a little more each time. Maybe you'll find some answers, or maybe you'll end up walking away with even more Curly Questions, which is great. So, stay tuned and get Curly. Hello, this is Lee and welcome to Curly Questions Podcast. This is the show for things with no straight answer. It's all about our hidden perceptions and biases, the things that we never know about that exist and plays out in everyday lives. In this episode, I'd like to ask, have you ever wondered why you choose the biggest popcorn at the movies when you're not even hungry? Well, on Curly Questions Episode 1, that's exactly you'll find out why with David from UX Psychology. David has a very interesting background, and I'll let him give a spill. Hey, David, how are you? Good. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Lee. It's such a, a pleasure, such a privilege to be here. Yes, yeah, so I'm a UX uh, psychologist. I've been working in this industry for over you know, three to five years now, and there's two things that I really like to do. It's help build great products that everyone can use, and secondly, build communities that help empower people. Wow, sounds like we've got the right person, the right speaker at this moment. That's right. I think previously we met um, through a meetup a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we spoke about some biases that's playing out in everyday lives. Um, love for you to share around your views around the biases that we don't see, we don't hear, but it's actually playing out. Totally. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Yeah, we met at the uh, when I spoke at AGL on biases and the six biases that you need to watch out for in product development. But I think these are applicable to everything, including our life, our work, and they overlap to a large extent. Yeah, that would be great. Um, would you maybe tell us through some of the biases and, you know, even with like popcorn, why do you buy the biggest popcorn at the movies? Sounds really ridiculous. I mean, we're not hungry, but we end up buying the biggest popcorn. Why? Yeah, that's right. Everyone always wants to know the answer to that question. And that's one that's actually called the decoy effect. Basically, it's when you're presented with two options, it's pretty easy for us to make a decision between which one we want, right? And we generally go for the larger option. It's not until we actually have a decoy in place that people tend to then gravitate towards the larger option. It's hard to talk it through. <laughs> it's easier to show. But the, the main message and the main thing to take away is it's called the decoy effect. And the decoy is that middle option generally, you know, not the small, not the large, but the one in the middle that makes you select the larger option. And you see it not only in popcorn, but you also see it with phone plans and you see it with like certain telcos will do it and they'll put a decoy plan in so it makes the other plans look more, more expensive plans look more appealing. Wow, sounds like we've got a lot to unpick from here. <laughs> Whoa, sounds like curly questions, to be honest. Very. Yeah, how can we, I mean, just on the decoy effect, Yes. Um, how can we be mindful? Because it sounds like it's always at play in everyday life with all the businesses that want to sell us big things. Totally. Yeah, how can we be mindful? Oh, wow. With any bias, they're not very easy to remove totally, but you can definitely manage them something to be mindful of. So we're all human and biases exist because essentially our brain takes shortcut. In the environment, there's too much information. There's not enough meaning. There's not enough time for us to make decisions. And there's not enough memory in our brains at the time. So with those four things in mind, this is why our brain takes shortcuts 
and they see the decoy and our brain makes decisions based on that information. So coming back to the point is being aware that this is how your brain functions and then finding these in your environment and actually looking out for them and becoming aware of these Mm -hmm. is the first step. Mm, That's great. Self-awareness. It feels like you said about, you know, not, not having enough memory or even the headspace to actually process things. Yes. feels like as if we shouldn't maybe make a decision after we have a long day at work. Is that probably your recommendation? Totally. Totally. We are more susceptible when, you know, we are more tired. You know, even if you were, say, intoxicated as well, this is when the brain starts to make even worse decisions um, and takes even more shortcuts. Something that I find really interesting about the brain is that due to us not having a really great memory, we actually are much better at recognising rather than recalling. So to give you an example, if I asked you, you know, what are your preferences out of a a long list, and I said, you know, what are your preferences Mm -hmm. for the clothes that you might wear? Now, if I asked you that, you might be able to give me a list, but it'd be quite hard for you to, like, actually grab all that from memory. The other option or the other alternative is I show you pictures of different clothes that you might like to wear and you then have to select them. So in that instance, you're actually recognising as opposed to recalling and we're actually a lot better at doing that. Would that also mean that recognising from a visual point of view? Correct. Yeah, okay. So how does it play out in online shopping then, does it? Ooh, <laughs> great question, yeah. great question, yeah. With online shopping, these biases come to life, really. These marketers and companies have really latched onto this idea that, you know, our brains do things like this, and as a result, they do take advantage of it in a lot of cases. I don't know if you've seen the the website called uh, bookings.com. They use a very popular uh, bias, or they play on a particular bias called scarcity. So we don't have a lot of time. Um, and you want to book an accommodation, you know, yesterday, and you don't want to miss out on that really nice apartment that's currently there. So they use scarcity to really drive people to make decisions instantly. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right, I've got to be mindful the next time I make a booking on booking.com, I suppose. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, totally. But this is the thing, right? And this is the question to ask. Is it helpful? Is it manipulative? You know, is it something that we need to be aware of? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe to you or I, we actually are quite aware of this. But these are things that I constantly question. Where do you draw the line with this stuff? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that probably falls into the next question about ethics of technology, to be honest, which is probably quite a big one to tackle at this moment. That is a big one. (laughs) Yeah, I guess guess just just back to the point about um, recognizing versus recalling. Yes. Um, I used to come from a banking background, so I feel like, in today's society, you're moving towards a cashless society. Totally. feels a bit more removed from the cash and it feels like maybe we're just spending a bit more because we're just using plastic all the yeah. time. Yeah. So what do you think about it? Is that you feel that there's a bit of uh, the biases at play because we're so removed from the physical money itself? That's an interesting one, actually. And I, and I haven't actually considered that, where how biases tie into our idea of money. But it's definitely an interest within the bank, I think, for us to be moved towards a digital currency, yeah. for us to then spend more, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not sure what call that buys, but maybe, yeah, maybe it's a form, yeah, and maybe it's a form of like, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's all right. We'll find it's, out. It's, <laughs> we should find out. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But we'll find out in more of the future episodes <laughs> with you again, I think. That sounds good. Yeah. I think, I think just to revert back to booking.com around yeah. driving scarcity, do you feel that that also sort of lead to a different culture, a different way of doing things? 
Potentially. Yeah. If everyone starts adopting these types of tricks, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen to online, you know, in a behaviour? If everything we do and see online is going to be tailored to our specific preference and, you know, what we then start to see is just a bubble around us of the information that we've liked in the past or our friends have shared with us and, you know, that'll create, yeah, little bubbles of serious bias, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of an echo chamber in the future that, that might happen. So Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, so what other biases do you see sort of manifesting in, in today's life that we should really be mindful about? Oh, I'm glad you ask. Lots and lots of biases out there. One of my favourites is really confirmation bias. Um, so this is when we hold a belief quite strongly and then we go and look for validation about this idea and then we find it with either the people around us or online. So, for example, you know, paleo diet, that's pretty popular at the moment. People go, oh, paleo diet is the best diet out there at the moment. First thing they do is jump online on Google and type in, what are the benefits of paleo diet? A long list of, you know, the benefits of paleo diet come up and they're convinced that there's a paleo diet. But what do we know about theories? You can't prove a theory true, right? Mm. You can only disprove a theory yeah, wow. So, you know what I mean? That's how the bias actually occurs. Yeah, because by researching on it, we just confirm our own biases. Exactly, right? exactly. Uh, how do we unpick those then? Oh, oh wow, it sounds... <laughs> oh. I mean, just today, right? I mean, just yeah. yesterday, I mean, I've been a bit sick, so I just bought a slow juicer. Oh, nice. I've um, been sort of researching on juicing recipes. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I'm like, juicing is the best way. That's right. Yeah, but it could be now a part of my bias. True. Yeah. So to understand if juicing is the best, you'd have to try and disprove that by researching other options and comparing and contrasting. So that's probably the most effective way to then make unbiased decisions. Yeah. You know, and then if you were to compare, okay, what are the other diets out there or what are the other methods that are used to say? Yeah. They could be they could be better in terms of nutritional value and all that. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but it's funny because like I was bought the juicer and I'm like, yeah. oh, i got to make the best use out of it. So I'm like, it must be the best because I bought it. That's <laughs> right. But th- we all fall into that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, though, this is the thing. Where do you draw the line? If you're happy with your juicer and you enjoy your juice, then, you know, yeah. no worries. Yeah. But it's always good to have another angle. Mm-hmm. You know, like what was the goal in buying a juicer for you? The angle is really not to fall sick so easily um, to sort of get more nutrition, get more micronutrients, okay. really feel like I'm fit and strong. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Hmm. So then playing with that, that's like your springboard. In terms of actually dealing with these biases, it's like, okay, nutrition. What do I know about nutrition? What are the assumptions that I'm making about nutrition? What has led me to make this decision right now to buy a juicer? Yeah. Then what are the other options out there? in this health industry because it's a minefield out there and I fall for it too, yeah. right? And you're like, there's all these options and how do I know which one's right, right? Yeah, that's right. So this is also something I research quite a lot and I always having to constantly check in with my brother, for example, check in with my father or in the medical profession and, and checking to see and, and sense checking. This is a term I like to use often. It's sense checking. Because I make a lot of assumptions yeah. based on what I find online, for example, about food, nutrition, mm-hmm. uh, exercise, yeah. which, you know, can can be very much tailored to what I've searched. 
there's a previous point about being like in a bubble, being in an echo chamber. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And sense check, would that mean that, you know, just sounding off with friends and family, you know, in person and over yeah. the phone? Friends, family, but also like unbiased reviewers. So I'm always looking like at Choice Magazine. Hmm. Choice Magazine do great reviews on things. But also I always look at like if it's on a website, a particular website, like what is the intention of that website? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. For example, as well, like real estate agents and property, for example, if, mm-hmm. if there's a, a real estate agent and you're talking to him about a property that he's or she's selling, obviously the information they're going to give you is in the interest of them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if you say, oh, so, you know, how much does it rent for? You know, they're always going to colour it a lot nicer than what it is. So it's very important to always triangulate that information with data, for example, that you find online, yeah. but also what other people are saying or what comparable houses are saying we might be getting a little bit off topic but <laughs> this is this is something that i'm really interested in and constantly diving into and thinking about yeah yeah wow sounds great so what are the biases like confirmation Ooh. bias decoy effect um sounds like there's quite a fair bit of them well we've covered confirmation bias that's a great one. Oh, i think a nice segue from confirmation bias is also selection bias so coming back to the example that we were just speaking about around nutrition and you know who do we seek out well for example if i always seek out the same person to validate my assumptions about diet about food about eating then that could be leading to a bias in its own right that's why i always like to check you know, academic journals. That's mm-hmm. why I like to check on choice. That's why I like to constantly keep changing the sources about where I validate those assumptions. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like there's a lot of work to be done in buying something. Oh, <laughs> so much. So much. But you know what the research says? Apparently, sometimes when we do too much research into a, something that we're going to buy, we can easily be let down compared to someone who doesn't put in as much research. Because our expectations start to get raised very high. And expectations is another very interesting part of assumptions that we make. Um, they That forms part of a like a matrix of decision-making, which I'm currently working on and playing with and actually toying with myself, that all our decisions are affected and our happiness yeah. is affected by four things. Yeah. And they are assumptions that we make about things, yes. the expectations we have on those things, yeah. who we're blaming in that instance. Yeah. Right? There's a fourth element which I'm exploring, but haven't quite got there yet. I can't remember it right now. Well, I'm sure we'll get there next yeah. time around. So, yeah. yeah. Shall we try to unpick a few more biases? Sorry, yes, no, we're no, getting no, no. a little bit uh, no. off topic. But um, there's also the framing effect. Framing effect has to do with the questions that we ask, and the way that we ask questions has a huge influence on the impact on the outcome that we get. So there's a very interesting piece of research that was conducted around this with two cars smashing into each other. And you might remember this one from AGL. So what happened in this research is that two cars were crashing into each other and different people were asked about the speed that the cars were traveling. So these people were asked a series of questions like about how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? Another group of people were asked about how fast were the cars going when they collided into each other. Another group of people were then asked about how fast were the cars going when they contacted into each other, right? That was all pretty normal, right? And people gave very similar responses. But it wasn't until they said about how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other that something very interesting happened. Do you know what that might have been? 
I can't remember, actually, to be honest. Oh, ah, <laughs> well, so what happened was when they actually asked about how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, people gave higher estimates of the speed of the cars. Ah, uh, because the word smash the does word. include a bit of the speed. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Wow. It has that connotation, that implication that the cars were going faster. There's more to this, right? Yeah. So they did a follow-up study, and they actually found that of the people that said about how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, one week later they asked, was there any glass present? Mm. Majority of people said yes, even though no glass was present. Just by changing one word, smashed, can have a huge impact. Whoa, it sounds like we have a bit of... uh Attachment to some words, though, like the meaning of words, yes, does play a big role in the way that the biases plays out in us. Totally, wow. totally. Cool. The words that we use have a huge impact, yeah. especially on the questions that we ask. Yeah. So, like leading questions, I hear this all the time. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Do you know? Instead of oh, how do you find it? You know, yeah. tell me more about that. Do you know? How often do you hear something so broad? Not very often, I tell you what. <laughs> you know, people are generally very leading with their questions and what they want to get out of it. So, one tip with that: always ask open questions. Hmm. And the open question could be like, "How might we do something? How do you find something?" Rather than, "Do you like this or that?" Because that is really a bias in the question. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, if you want to get essentially the takeaway there is, if you want to get to the real crux of something, then. You need to ask open questions because yeah. from the beginning, if you lead someone down one path, they will go down there, yeah. and you won't find out the truth behind what's actually got them there. Yeah, it's funny because I think a lot of us are used to asking biased questions. And um, I think when I first started my job, I think a few weeks ago, I tried to ask a bit of broad questions, yeah. and they're like, "They don't know how to answer me." No, and they're like, "Oh," <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, am I talking Greek or something?" <laughs> People get confused, don't they? Like, hmm, yeah, what like, are you trying to get at? Yeah, like, just tell me, like, yeah, what, what do you think about this? There's no wrong, no right, but just what do you think about this? Yeah. <laughs> Open questions scare people. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why? Why is that? What happened to the culture and the society? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> wow, this is going to take quite a bit to unpick, I suppose. Yeah, but what about what other than um, selection? I mean, framing biases that we have. Mm, mm, that's a that's a good. So we've covered off confirmation. We've covered off framing. We've covered off decoy effect. I'm now just thinking. There's also the observer effect, which is a very interesting one. The observer effect. I know it sounds very basic, but it's literally that when you're around people, people behave differently to what they might actually say compared to what they do. For example. There's this thing called the say-do gap. You know, if you ask someone, you know, how do you generally carry out this task, they'll tell you most likely that they do it one way, whereas if you actually were to watch them in their home or have a video camera of them and no, they thought no one was watching, they'd probably do it another way. Oh, wow. We're just, we're just flawed as humans. It might be due to a lack of memory. It might be due to, a, you know, they're wanting to actually not tell you the truth. It might yeah. be something quite embarrassing. That's another interesting one that to be mindful of, and especially in the work that I do with user research, you know, I'm always constantly aware of this say-do gap. 
So when I'm mm. actually testing with people yeah. um, and asking them how they actually interact with an interface or an app, for example, I'll actually get them to do it as opposed to tell me how they do it. Because mm. when you do something, yeah. it's a lot more accurate as opposed to... Yeah, because you're showing out your emotions as you do something, I think, rather than when you speak about it, you probably doesn't quite engage you in the same way. Exactly. No, no, you're spot on. You're spot on. And there's some research that backs this up, and they're called the Hawthorne Studies. And these were done quite a while ago, but they're still very relevant today. Mm -hmm. And these uh, experiments essentially found that higher productivity was because the workers were being observed and not because of the changes they made in the environment. So essentially, in this study, they changed different elements in the environment to see how it impacted productivity. And they made all these changes, but there was no relationship between the changes. You know, they changed the lighting, they changed the air temperature, they changed the duration of time. And each time it changed the way that they worked, but it wasn't very consistent until they actually realized that their productivity was actually a function of the fact that they were being watched. That then this uncovered a whole bunch of different biases that occur when people are being watched and led us to this say-do gap, I think. Hmm, okay. And how do you sort of see that playing out in everyday life? Is it like in schools, in, you know, your kids? Just wondering how is that playing out and how we can be mindful of it as well? Totally. Yeah, totally. In terms of everyday life, I suppose, I know this sounds really bleak, but not taking everything at face value. Like when someone says something, it might not always be the truth. Like there's there's a real say-do gap, right? Yeah. When you say something and when you do something are two different things. The only way to really be objective is to actually, if you want to get to the crux of something, is to actually see someone in their environment where they don't know they're being observed. Wow, that sounds creepy. It's real creepy, right? It's real creepy, but this is, we're humans and we're flawed. Yeah, in everyday life, I don't know. Do you have any examples of where that could play out? Um, I don't know. I think in schools, like, you know, when you're being observed by teachers, you might yes. do a certain thing, mm. but in actual, you actually don't buy into it. You don't really want to walk the talk. Yes. At, even with, not just in schools, but, you know, even at work. Yes. <laughs> when you have your bosses watching over you, it's sort of different, I think. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You think, oh, the people, yeah, are they watching me or should I be working harder now? Or yeah. what? If, yeah. We start to like question these things when people are watching. Yeah, and they start to do things a bit differently. Like, oh, we just don't really do anything when you're being observed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's like a, it's like a monkey in a cage being, yeah. <laughs> being observed by a bunch of scientists and seeing whether the, the monkey will behave in a certain way if I swing a banana at it or, yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. I haven't thought about it like that. But yeah, I think that something that else that came to mind is that I think that's more apparent when there isn't a, a clear purpose. When people don't understand why they're doing something, and this comes back to even to what Simon Sinek says, people don't understand the why. They're not going to work for something. They're not going to work hard for something. You Mm. know, for example, we're here recording um, at Spark Deacon and there's people staying back late um, to work. And it's fantastic because it's, it's clear to me that they understand their why. And we're just having this discussion around they understand why they're here, what they need to achieve, and they're happy to work. We saw three people here working back late. That's fantastic. They don't need anyone overlooking their shoulder mm. to, to sort of manage them. But in some workplaces, that's not the case. In some workplaces, people go there just to get a paycheck, and that's their reason why. That's totally fine. But there's a difference. There's a difference mm. between the people that do it out of a purpose and understand the why compared to the people that just rock up every day just to get that paycheck and then leave at the end of the day. 
coming back to what that means about the observer effect, the people that have that purpose don't need a manager looking over their shoulder constantly. You can probably guarantee that they're going to do a great job. The others, I'm not sure what it says about them. <laughs> so we're more subjected to the observer bias as well. I that's, that's right. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Wow, things that we can bring back to work and really put that to use. Yeah. <laughs> um, another bias? Yeah, if you have, another. Yeah, we've got a couple more. Yeah, we've got lots more. There's also the anchoring bias. Have you heard of this one? I heard of it, but I can't quite remember. I think it's more like you anchor yourself to something. Yes, that's a good one. That's a good start. It's, it's like anchoring bias is when we, especially when we see a number, and then we obviously relate back to that number when we make decisions. So I'll give you a bit of an example, right? But in a sales process, this is used quite a lot. So for example, if you go to an expensive bag shop, you know, down here in Melbourne, and in the window, you see a bag for $10,000. You then, you know, that's in the window and you say, oh, gee, that's really quite expensive. Mm-hmm. So then you go into the store and you notice that everything in the store's maybe half price. You know, it's $5,000 or $1,000 or, you know, $100 for a keychain. You're like, oh, geez, that doesn't seem so bad now because, you know, the bag I saw was like ten grand. It's like, so that there is anchoring. So we anchor on that one figure and then make decisions based on that anchor. And we see that with real estate agents as well. We see that when they are trying to sell a house, they might just throw in a figure like, oh, this house is only worth 450000 And then they'll show you around. And then, you know, you'll say, oh, only 450000 But that must be cheap then if you're telling me that. And, you know, that must be around the price. But when you go look actually at the data and that houses in the area have been selling for like 400 a lot of people fall for that trap and it's actually called the anchoring effect and salespeople use it all the time. Wow, just to your example, this, that, that explains why the property prices are rising. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <Goodness. laughs> Maybe, yeah, yes. Yeah, so really, in a definition, it's the tendency to rely too heavily on the first bit of information we see when making decisions. This is the anchor, that bag at the start. Hmm. Wow, sounds good. And there's some research, obviously, to support this, because I always bring it back to the research. You know, my approach is backed in research and data and evidence and ethical practices. So what we always do is bring it back to the research. So this is a, an article that was published by Thaler and Sunstein in 2018. They asked people, you know, what's the population of Tallahassee? One group saw Los Angeles has a population of 4 million people, whereas Group B saw the population of Liberty in New York is 9,900. So they're two figures, 4 million and 9,900. What happened was Group A, when asked what the population of Tallahassee was, gave a much higher estimate compared to Group B, which saw the lower number. So to reiterate... Group A made a much higher guess because they saw Los Angeles has a 4 million people because they anchored on 4 million. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, that's really interesting though. It sounds like first bit of information really drives the way we think for the rest of the day. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so we just got to start our day right with a right number, I suppose, or right info. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So here, anchor is like... Today, I'm going to work like eight hours and you anchor on eight hours and then that's like your anchor. I don't know. That's that's one way to look at it. But it's definitely more applicable to sales environments or if you want to get someone to do something, for example, yeah. your boss, for example, could yeah. use it, you know, in the workplace. You know, I think this might take about three hours. 
but you know, you know, it's actually going to take like five to six hours. They're anchoring you in order to get the job done quicker. I don't know. Maybe that's a tactic that bosses or mm. could use. Yeah. Tell. <laughs> it's, it's this stuff is super manipulative, right? But it works, and salespeople use it. And obviously, it's always be to be used for good. It's not for use for bad. So yeah. Yeah. In most cases, I hope. <laughs> I hope that's right. That's right. Yeah, but it's, it's good practice, though. I think the next time my boss says that, oh, it's just going to take a day to finish <laughs> these things, I'm like, uh, are you trying the anchoring effect on me? <laughs> that's right. And that's a good point. Calling out biases yeah. is really cool. And once you call them out, they dissipate. Once you see it or once you yeah. speak about a bias, yeah. then everyone becomes aware of it. Yeah. Or it could be the biases they spoke about and the way we frame a question. I could even ask the boss, like, oh, what makes you think that it's only a day's work? Yes. Rather than saying, what do you like about I mean, instead of being a biased question, just ask a broad question, like, why do you think that is the case? Yes, yes, why? Yeah, ask why. Why is that? Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, so we killed two bias in one stone <laughs> with one shot. Oh, yeah. Great. Sounds really good. I think it's been a, a really good night, I think, thank with you. all the biases and really interesting insights. Um, I think with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And a big thanks to David for sharing his insights and also a big shout out to Deakin University. Thank you. For this awesome space in, in Docklands. Yeah, thanks, David. Have you got any last shout out? My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, next week um, we'll be at Academy XI. Thought Collaborative is presenting on talking to users. Also, we are constantly recording on the UX Psych YouTube channel, so stay tuned for our next video. Great, sounds good. Great, thanks, David. Thanks so much. See you soon.